Richard, thank you very much, and good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be with you. Yes, it's true, I am a student, um, and Richard and I have had the privilege of sort of sharing space together in Durham uh, um, since he joined us a year or so ago. It's one of those opportunities you get um, at a certain age where uh, you can either flash your student card or your old age pensioner's card <laughs> and hopefully confuse everybody on both counts. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the object of the exercise. Uh, well, thank you very much for uh, weaving me on to the tail end of your series on Job. Uh, a great book, as you will have discovered in the journey. Uh, Job 42, this latter end of Job, is the sort of happy resolution to the documentary of Job's life. Uh, so I get to do the nice bit where everything works out eventually and the story ends up like we'd like it to. And Job, more than anyone else, is associated with ideas of suffering and turmoil and uncertainties. But we forget that actually the bookends of Job is the first bit, all blessing and wonderful things going on. At the bottom end, uh, things resort to what it was at the beginning. So the bookends of Job's life is great news, blessing, even more news and more blessing. In the middle, there's a tremendous amount of trauma with which we normally associate the whole notion of Job. Job is like a synonym for bad news. Uh, in actual fact, the whole point of the story is the exact opposite. Uh, this, is, this is where things resolve. I, I think of Job 42 as synonymous with, you know, that, you know when you had a really bad toothache and then you take something for it and you feel your nerves coming back in and it's going to resolve itself. Or if you've had a bad asthma attack or something and you're beginning to breathe again. Uh, it, Job is a bit like that. This is the last bit where things are coming back into normal. And so we get to be, to listen in on Job's prayer of victory, the prayer um, that moves mountain. And it's a prayer that defies the idea that prayers which roll back mountains are loud and long and supercharged. You know, there is that kind of, let me take this down a little bit and see if that helps the guys in the back. Is that okay? That's a bit better, isn't it? Can you hear me at the back? Okay. Um, I don't like carrying things in my hands. My, my fingerprints are a bit too heavy for me sometimes, so trying to resist the other mic. Uh, yeah, so, so there is this idea that successful and powerful prayers... Successful and powerful prayers are loud and long, you know, they're... Um, in my tradition, we used to talk about storming the throne of heaven, which is a very aggressive kind of thing. But what we have here is a prayer of repose. It's actually the man who has come to the end of his rope and gives up his fight against God. That's the whole point here. The mountain-moving prayer is not necessarily loud and aggressive. It happens somewhere between our head and our heart where we give up the struggle against God and to some extent we take God out of the dock 
many years ago, there was a very, um, I had a really great relationship with a good family friend. Her name was Joan. She was very young and had a tremendous power, tremendously powerful prophetic ministry, but constantly struggling constantly struggling between what she felt God was calling her to do and sometimes even her willingness to do so. Here's a poem I wrote as we were about to part company when she was about to move to the United States. It's the first time I think I'm reading this in public after more than 30 years. We've come so far and I have grown to know you well. He knows you better still And better will you know him and yourself if unreserved your soul surrenders to his will. If every trace of harsh resistance mounts upon his cross, all struggles lost, all longing to be freed subsides, and every urge to fight be crucified. Then it may be, That you at last may know the things which God has called you to do and the reasons you were called to suffer so. The last time I read that to someone, it was to somebody struggling with the idea of entering the Anglican ministry, but there you go. I'd like to pull out five features which I think we come across, more or less between Job 42 verses 1 to 10-ish. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours is thwarted. So number one, principle number one, is actually just to get with the program and to recognize that God is sovereign. God runs things. And this is the point at which Job recovers from cognitive dissonance. A flashy term somebody told me about many years ago. Cognitive dissonance happens to everyone. It's that gap between what you know should be the case and what you're actually experiencing in reality. I think the average worship service is filled with a lot of cognitive dissonance. Great songs about the power of God, about God moving mountains. And you're sat there thinking, yeah, but why can't I get a job? Why is my marriage in such a mess? Why can't I be healed of this thing? People have been praying for me for ages. What's wrong with my kids? The songs of victory and power and the overcoming God overshadowed by the reality of internalized personal defeats on a daily basis. And you wonder, what is it which holds you together between this idea of the sovereign God and the experiences you have? Cognitive dissonance. Listen, this happens to everybody who expects anything from God. Actually, the best way not to have that kind of disappointment with God is not to expect anything from him. And some people do that. It's an easier option. God doesn't do anything particular. Every prayer ends with, if it is thy will, let it be done. That's the easy option. If we don't have expectations of God, he never disappoints us. No cognitive dissonance going on there. So there is no room for doubt for many of us. And yet, doubt has a legitimate place to play in this journey of discovering the will of God in the face 
of immovable objects in our lives. No room for doubt. The Archbishop got himself in a little spot of bother the other day, didn't he? He said that terrorism sometimes drives him at least temporarily to doubt. What a great coup for the media. And I met somebody last week who was very upset with him for saying that publicly. (laughs) She said to me, well, of course he's right. But he shouldn't say that publicly. That's the problem. You can't afford to let people know when cognitive dissonance is going on. Reminds me of my old PE games teacher, English teacher, art teacher, Mr. Taylor. Mr. Taylor was a very odd guy, but he used to say really helpful things. One occasion, he used to say to us, never let them know you're hurt, lad. It only makes them big-headed. And that's true. People out there don't want to know when we are hurting because it makes a secular, doubting world very big-headed. And so what we do is we conspire in the presence of pain to pretend it's not happening. This is Job recognizing the sovereignty of God and coming to the place where cognitive dissonance is abating. It's rolling back. He's suddenly moving through this disconnect between faith in God and what was happening to him and beginning to recognize again God really is sovereign. I know that you can do all things. Listen, you only pray that kind of prayer with authenticity and authority if you've actually gone through the valley of doubt, if you've gone to that place where life and faith is just not making sense. And there's room in the prayer which removes mountains to acknowledge that maybe that's okay for a while. Here's a second thing I'd like to extract from Job's amazing prayer. It's recognizing, therefore, the limits of our own comprehension. You asked, who is this? This is God asking of Job, that obscures my plans without knowledge. Surely I spoke of things, said Job, I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. And this is the great irony of God's power. It's the point at which we are okay with not being intellectually in control of everything. And in the constellation of gods, Yahweh's unique feature is that he rushes in at the very point at which we are willing to serve a God who exists beyond my ability to think about him. This is an amazing contradiction in terms. God dashes in when we finally reach that place where we say, Wow, God, I just don't get it. God is okay, you know, with being in the dock for a while. But he is always at his best when we turn him loose from the dock of our own suspicion, our own intellectual interrogation. Yeah, there is a place for that. There is a place to ask the tough questions of God and about God and to God. There is a place to put him in the dock and say, I don't get what you're doing. I don't even like what you're doing. It doesn't make sense to me. There is a place for that. But I tell you this, prayers which remove mountains, 
are those prayers where eventually we say, God, you are sovereign. And at last I begin to recognize that there are things I never really will understand about you. And I'm okay with that. I always say that in heaven, after great words like, Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. God, you're wonderful. You're beautiful. The most popular word in heaven, I think, is going to be, Ah! Ah! I get it. So here's my third thing. The first-hand awareness of God is my third point. My ears have heard of you, and now my eyes have seen you. This is often what happens to us when we're coming out of this place of cognitive dissonance, this place of turmoil and questioning and uncertainties, where faith really has been put on the anvil, and we're coming through with God. It is to recognize that, ironically, God takes us through these cognitive limitations to material proof. And the God we can't see insists in responding to us in the material world of sight and sound. He is a living God. And a living God operates in the living world and operates in the material world. There is a place to recognize that God impinges on our senses. And throughout scriptures you meet it again and again. God talks about what you hear and what you see. I love the testimony which Jesus gave John. Do you remember it's Matthew 11? John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus. John's in prison about to get his head uh, topped off. And so he wants to just get a second opinion before he, you know, goes. I mean, if, you, if the whole of your ministry has been, Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one, and then here you are in prison, you kind of want to make sure that you were right before you leave the planet. So he sends a message to um, Jesus by his uh, disciples, and he says, oh, can you... T- Can you tell me, are you the real deal, or did I really get it wrong? And Jesus said, listen, go back, tell John what you hear and what you see. I love this. Not just what you believe God may be able to do in some kind of abstract way. Tell John what you've seen, what you've heard. Because what you've seen and what you heard is the evidence that God operates in the material world in ways which can be uh, uh, interrogated by our, uh, by our senses. And so the God of faith, the God of the ethereal, the God of the philosophical, the God of the belief system which we raise beyond our comprehension is also happy to operate in the real world. There was a story of the man at Gate Beautiful. You know that in Acts chapter 3, if you've been around church for a while. This guy is healed uh, by Peter and John as they say, look, we don't have silver or gold. We'll give you what we've got. Rise up. They heal this man who was lame from birth. The man gets up. He is jumping and charging around Jerusalem like a kangaroo on steroids. It creates a commotion. Finally, they pull the apostles together and they say, well, In what authority are you doing this? And they say to them, in response, This man whom you see and you know has been healed 
to the power of Jesus. Thank God for a faith which works, really works. Who wants a God who does nothing about anything? No, this God actually works in the material world. My ears have heard of you, and now my eyes have seen you, said Job. Educational psychologists tell us that someone learns exponentially much more by seeing and hearing than if they just heard something, which is why all sensible, effective, and good preachers sometimes use visuals as well. But they're the good ones whose ministry count. So number four, the prayer of repentance becomes a very important part of Job's prayer which moves mountain. Therefore, said Job, when I've come to recognize all of this, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Of course, despising here doesn't mean uh, an inclination for self-harm. It doesn't mean Job walking around saying, oh, I'm rubbish, I'm rubbish. It just means I put myself in the right proportion in relation to God. I step back from my arrogance. I take myself off my high horse. I come down in humility. I recognize myself in relation to who God is. And therefore, I'm taking a different account, taking stock of who I am, and repent in dust and ashes. Yeah, this is real mourning. This is real prayer of repentance. But it's a little bit more than that. This prayer is more than saying sorry. It's a radical reappraisal of who God is. This is the anti-arrogant attitude to God. That's what this is. Prayers which remove mountains do not exercise arrogance. A broken and a contrite heart, the psalmist says, Psalm 51. You will not despise. God's got no time, really. But people come strutting up to the throne as if somehow God owes them a big favor they're coming to cash in on. I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl for two whole days. You need to bless me now. This is about someone who comes before God recognizing that they've got nothing to offer, really, but totally depend on this incomprehensible God who acts in the real world on behalf of people. And so forth, this prayer of repentance becomes a very important feature of Job's mountain-moving prayer. Here's the last point. That praying for your friends counts. Job 42, 7 and 8, just a little beyond our reading. And after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends. These were the guys who came and gave Job a really tough time. It was like kicking a bloke when he was down. Because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you I will accept his prayer. 42.10 puts it this way. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes 
and gave him twice as much as he had before. I love this. I love this. This is praying for your friends. Not just your mates next door. This is your naughty friends. This is your friends who have actually misrepresented God. The misrepresentation of God is about as serious a sin as you can commit, frankly. This is why God is taking it seriously. Go get yourself seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant, that he will atone for your sins, because you have spoken, basically, foolishness. And the sin of misrepresenting God is the sin of Eden. That's what happened in Eden. The biggest sin in Eden, whatever you make of Genesis 1 to 3 is the fact that God is demonized in the Eden story. Did God say you can't eat any of the fruit in the garden, says Satan, to Eve? In other words, God is a really tough guy, isn't he? Oh, no, 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 says Sister Eve. He didn't say you can't eat any fruit in the tree. He said, just don't touch or eat the middle one, because in the day when you eat it or even touch it you will die. Two lies about God from the very beginning. One, that God is a total spoil sport. Don't eat anything anyway. Don't have any fun. You know. Um, no, no, let's correct that, says Eve. God isn't, God isn't that bad, but he's slightly difficult because he said don't eat or even touch. God didn't say don't touch. He said don't eat. Oh, no, 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 no. God knows if you eat this fruit, you're going to be just like him. And the demonization of God is the prelude to secular mindsets which remove themselves from God. The demonization of God is the prelude to anyone who doesn't want to do what God is asking them to do. Because if God always looks harsher than he is, it's easier to ignore his sovereignty in my life. And this is what Job had to pray for. These were the people... Job were asked to pray for his friends yes but people who had really overstepped the mark and had demonized God angry with you God said and your friends because you have not spoken the truth about me doesn't get worse than that to tell porkies on God is serious business and therefore Job is called in to pray for these kinds of friends. What would happen with us? What would happen with our church if we projected our prayers beyond the building, beyond the tent, beyond our families and really agonized and prayed and interceded for the very people we think are giving us a hard time, the people who don't want to put on the um, Lord's Prayer at Christmas um, in the cinemas before Star Wars or Uh, The secularists who are against us, the people who are constantly the anti-God brigade. What might happen? Here was Job, moving mountains through prayers which prayed for his friends. Let me stop. Mountain-moving prayers are powerful because they are fundamentally prayers which exudes a confidence because of God's sovereignty in which we rest. In all the book, Job feels more at ease with himself here because he is most at ease with God. 42 introduces you to a Job who has has become at ease with himself because he is more comfortable about God. David Wilkinson, our 
principle in St. John's, put it this way, in a lovely little book called When I Pray, What Does God Do? Confidence is such a key thing in how we grow and how we live. I don't mean overconfidence, says David, which lead to arrogance and carelessness, but a sense of security, a conviction that there will be victory. When I pray, what does God do? Or put it this way, Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is what Job discovered. This is what we have the privilege of replicating in our lives and in our prayers, which moves mountains. God bless you.